millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Richard, did you hear there's an election coming up? <laughs> yeah. How about that? <laughs> and I think between now and the 2020 election, we will be doing a number of shows, not on the horse race. There's plenty of that. But on what goes on behind the scenes, how democracy works. Or doesn't. Uh, things such as election security, voter turnout, money in politics, broadening who participates in our democratic system, and how technology can be used as a force for good rather, rather, than, yeah, rather than being a threat. That, that would be nice. Well, today we're going to take a look at a news site that's devoted to covering the dysfunctions that plague our democracy, but also some good ideas for improving our democracy and access to the system. We're going to be talking with David Myers of The Fulcrum. 80% of Americans said in exit surveys that they believe there should be bipartisan political reform, and 55% said it should be a priority for Congress. So there is a need for somebody to write about this work. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? More than a third of Americans now view the government itself as the top problem in the United States, according to a Gallup poll released just this week. But proposals for reforming democracy are not getting a lot of coverage in the mainstream media. So let's take a look at some of the reform efforts that are underway and talk about which ones might in some ways help reduce this democratic dysfunction. The Fulcrum is a nonpartisan, nonprofit online news site covering election security, money and politics, and some of the other things we mentioned. David Myers is publisher and executive editor of The Fulcrum. He joins us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Tell us more about The Fulcrum, which is pretty new. It's only been launched this year. That's right. We went live in June. And our goal is to raise the level of awareness so people can understand what's wrong with the political system and how they may go about getting involved to help make it better. My partner, David Hawkins, and I both have spent decades in political journalism, and we've seen the way coverage has changed and the way government has changed. And we recognize that things can't keep continuing the way they are. But we're both journalists and we don't feel it's our place to say this is the right way to do things and that's the wrong way to do things. But we see how many people are out there trying to affect change and we want to give exposure to that and maybe even help more people get involved in whatever way they see fit. 
why do you think that right now the fulcrum is needed? I'll give you a little bit of my own personal backstory. Uh, I started at a newspaper in D.C. in 1996. Uh, it's a company called Roll Call. It covers Congress. Because it was the mid-'90s, there really wasn't much of a website at that point. So it was a print product only. And that allowed us to spend time really digging into how Congress works or doesn't work. It didn't work at the time. Uh, and the journalism felt like it had a purpose and a cause to it. Now, you fast forward to today, and there's so many media outlets that are chasing the same stories, which wasn't the case then. But the nature of the media business has changed to the point that a roll call can't do the work it was doing when I started there over 20 years ago. The fulcrum allows us that opportunity. As a nonprofit, we're not chasing ad dollars, so we can step back and say, what is the meaningful story that needs to be told? And we think there's an audience for that because we look at polling from the last couple of election cycles and we see that 80% of Americans said in exit surveys that they believe there should be bipartisan political reform and 55% said it should be a priority for Congress. So there is a need for somebody to write about this work. David, we mentioned that Gallup poll. It was pretty alarming, and you covered it on your site, about how alienated people are and unhappy people are with the way the government is working today. What's your takeaway from that? I think it's been building over time. There's always been a sense of dissatisfaction, and I think a lot of that is related to people just getting a better understanding of how government is supposed to work and then looking around and seeing how things really aren't working at all. I mean, you could look at Congress to begin with, where the number of bills that get passed has been dropping steadily. So there's nothing really coming out of Washington that is productive. Uh, and then people starting to hear more stories about gerrymandering or how hard it is to vote. And all of this is sort of building on top of each other. And then the growing use of social media creates echo chambers and it feeds back upon itself. And a lot of that is really what led us to get the fulcrum off the ground. Is it too hard for too many people to vote? It certainly seems that way. We've been doing a fair amount of reporting on this issue, and there are definitely cases where it's hard to vote. And that's for a variety of different reasons. In some cases, it's a geography issue. For example, we wrote about looking at Native Americans and their ability to both register and actually vote. And the geography of where they live, whether it's on reservations or elsewhere, makes it, won't say impossible, but it could become a full-day multi-day experience to have to drive hundreds of miles to the nearest registration or polling place and then try and vote and then get home. So in those cases, it could be too daunting of an experience to even take on. In other cases, it's the question of what type of ID do you need and can I get the right ID and when can I register? And it can be an educational issue in that people just don't understand going in what's required of them to vote. Some states will allow you to register on Election Day when you show up. Other states won't. So one of the things that we cover is efforts by different groups to help people be prepared in advance. Then there's the issue of can people get to the polling place physically, let alone the time difference. So should they be allowed to vote at home or vote online? Turnout in the United States is, is miserably low compared to most democracies overseas. Is part of the reason because it's easier to vote 
in many other countries than it is here. I think so. And that could be for different reasons. Uh, It can be a requirement to vote like it is in Australia. In other cases, that voting takes place over multiple days like it does in Canada, or it's on a weekend rather than on a Tuesday like it here in the United States. So there are a variety of reasons, factors that go into play there. uh, But certainly the ease of voting is, is at the heart of that. One of the things that I like about your site is you really aim to be bipartisan or nonpartisan, and you do a number of stories that might make one side or the other uncomfortable. One that I saw that you, you just recently did was about voter ideas, and it's an article of faith on the left that, of course, that makes it harder for minorities to vote. And in fact, you published an analysis that said, not so fast, the, the data isn't actually clear on this question. What was your takeaway from that? Before you answer that question about voter identification, for listeners overseas or people who aren't up on the whole voter ID controversy, what is it? So the controversy is related to the question of whether it's possible and easy enough for people to get a voter ID. In many cases, for most cases, probably it's a driver's license. But there are a lot of people who don't have a driver's license because it's not part of their life. They can't afford it, drive a car. So they don't know when they show up that they need an ID of some sort. People don't think, oh, I need my voter ID card. So it becomes a question of socioeconomic status. In many cases, race is related to that. So on the left, that requirement is seen as a form of voter suppression because you're making it more difficult for people, often minorities, to vote. Now, the counter to that is we should be ensuring that only registered voters who have the right status as citizens are allowed to vote. Nobody can really claim to know the full answer on any of these issues. And I think that argues for experimentation. I think there are a lot of different ideas out there and we can try different things in different places and see what's really working and then try and replicate them in more places and see if there's a scale to it that it can work from a local level to a state level and then a national level. You look at Seattle, where they've got a public financing system. Now, Seattle municipal elections are small compared to a bigger city or a state or the country, of course, but they seem to be making it work. And can that be tried somewhere else if we even think as a country that public financing is the right way to go for campaigns? Or in Maine, they are using ranked choice voting, and Massachusetts is getting close to possibly passing in, trying it there, and New York City is doing the same thing. So we're seeing some of these ideas being sampled in different places. So the question is, can those tests for any of these systems work well enough that more places are going to try doing innovative things like that? So you mentioned ranked choice voting. Can you just explain briefly how it works and why some people are advocating for it? Well, the way I like to explain it is ranked choice voting is like an instant runoff. There are some places where if nobody gets a majority vote, you got to come back and vote again. The way ranked choice voting works is when you go to vote, you will vote in order for multiple candidates. But let's say you are allowed to rank your top five choices for your congressional district. And then all the votes are tallied. If nobody has gotten a majority of first place votes, the person who got the least is removed from the ballot and their second place votes are then reallocated to all the remaining candidates. 
And that cycle repeats automatically until somebody gets to a majority. So the theory is doing that forces candidates to run less divisive campaigns because they know they need to appeal to more than just their base in order to win. One topic that's, I think, pretty emblematic of your mission is the question of election security. You just did a big story on that, and it got quite a reaction. Tell us what happened. Yeah, over the summer, there was a hackathon, and it's grown in their attempts to hack into different systems. This is the um, Voting Machine Hacking Village. And two years ago, 2017, uh, a group of hackers got together and identified 20 different types of voting machines and tried to hack into them. And then last year, they went after 30. This year, the group got together again and targeted 100 different types of voting machines, and they broke into all 100 of them. Wow. About 100 types of systems. Wow, uh, that's, so, that's extraordinary. Uh, all 100 types of voting systems they, they, they broke into. That's exactly right. So you're talking about some that do paper trails, some that print out barcodes, whatever it might be. And this group of hackers got into all of them. How do you protect the systems when there's no national standards and there are people out there who this isn't their job? They're not spending 40 hours a week because they've been told to see they get into the American political system. This is because they tried to do it over a three-day weekend and they succeeded 100% of the time. Well, maybe if there's any positive news to come out of that, it's the fact that there are 100 different systems rather than one that could get hacked by a major player. So that's an interesting point. And um, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that a variety can help spread out some of the risk. Um, I think that there might be a counter to that in that the government is now Senate, House and Senator trying to Uh, figure out how much they're going to spend on election security. But then once that amount gets apportioned out, all these states and localities got to figure out how they're going to spend it. We did a story recently about Wisconsin and how they were trying to apportion this money out to different counties. And some of them were saying, it's so little money, maybe I can buy a new computer. So without standards, it's going to be difficult for them to figure out the best ways to put this money to use. Jim's point about there being lots of different systems is, is well taken, but I wonder how long it's going to take the Russians or the Chinese to do the same thing. Well, and we know they've done it before. We know from Intelligence Committee reporting that hackers did get into systems and they had the capacity to change voter records and maybe even change voting results. Fortunately, that next step didn't seem to happen, but They've got the capacity to do it. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our guest is David Myers, who is publisher and executive editor of the online news site, The Fulcrum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. David, one of the topics that I think is kind of intriguing that would certainly make voting easier for a lot of people and maybe almost a kind of a national celebration would be the idea of turning Election Day into a national holiday. What's going on with that? Well, the short answer is nothing is happening there, which is fascinating, at least to us, because this was a key part of what is known as H.R. 1. When the Democrats uh, were coming into control of the House following the elections of 2018, they declared they were going to pass this bill called H.R. 1. And it was this slew of political reform issues, campaign finance and voting rights and all these things multiple, multiple components to it. One of them was making Election Day a national holiday. A lot of people wouldn't have the restriction of having to work, and they could take the day, whatever hours work for them, and go vote and hopefully increase the voting percentage. Now, there's two pieces of what happened there. H.R. 1, as we reported in our very first newsletter, is really nothing more than a messaging bill. Uh, This is a piece of legislation that the House Democratic Caucus was overwhelmingly behind Republicans were overwhelmingly against, and Mitch McConnell was never going to allow it to go through the Republican-led Senate. So the first piece to it is the House passed this bill, but it's dead on arrival in the Senate. But the hidden part of that story is the piece about Election Day being a national holiday was removed from the bill, and nobody, including us at first, noticed that that was the case. Uh, and our... Why? Why has that been removed? So the story that we dug into and found out is that the leadership on the committee that was working this bill was trying to get buy-in from Republican counterparts across the aisle. And one of the ways they found they're able to do that is by removing that piece of it. Um, So very quietly, without a lot of fanfare, the Election Day's national holiday component was dropped in committee as the bill was moving its way through the process. That raises another issue, which is that most government reform efforts are being promoted by Democrats and to a large extent being opposed by conservatives and by Republicans. Are there examples of Republican-leaning groups that actually favor some efforts of reform of the democratic system? Uh, There are groups that do this, and there are even efforts on Capitol Hill, which we can talk about as well if you'd like. On the group side is an outfit called Take Back Our Republic, and their focus is really around the campaign finance portion of this. Um, They believe very strongly that politics should be about the individual, especially the individual donor, and that's who should have a voice in supporting candidates rather than corporations and unions. Normally, this is a story on the Democratic side. In many cases, they fear Corporate giving favors Republicans too much, and they want to get corporate money out of politics. Uh, Take Back Our Republic agrees with that, but they are also very careful to emphasize this is about unions as well. They want people to have the power, not large organizations. Is there any progress in that? It doesn't seem like that's changed much. No, not really. Campaign finance is a tough one. Uh, I mean, this goes back decades on Capitol Hill with efforts to try and limit um, people's ability to give or companies' ability to give 
So there's always talk about new legislation, uh, but really the big fight now is around Citizens United, the Supreme Court case that allowed unlimited independent expenditures. So that's where the fight is. And uh, the debate is whether you should do this through a constitutional amendment or whether there's a better solution. Uh, so there's groups like End Citizens United, which argues for a 28th Amendment to the Constitution, essentially overturning the Citizens United decision. And even if that were to happen, you then have to do the legislative step of enacting new laws. So overturning Citizens United has a very long road if that's ever going to happen. Just, even can you was, just quickly yeah. explain what the Citizens uh, United yeah, decision is? Yeah, I think everybody thinks they know what it's about, but I'm not sure they actually know that, not to get too far into the weeds, but what did that case hinge on? So Citizens United versus FEC was a case that went to the Supreme Court in 2010. And basically the result of the decision is that corporations, nonprofits, and labor unions are all allowed to make unlimited expenditures for or against a political candidate. Uh, they just can't do it in conjunction with those candidates. So essentially it opens the floodgates to uh, independent spending on campaigns. Couldn't Citizens United be limited, though, through act of Congress? Uh, for instance, giving greater transparency to those independent funding groups so we know where some of those millions of dollars are coming from. Yes, that should be possible. But in the current political environment where Republicans feel very strongly that it's a free speech issue and that there should be some level of privacy for corporations, labor unions, nonprofits, uh, it doesn't seem like that's going anywhere. And the funny thing about that is in the last election cycle, Democratic groups actually outspent right-leaning groups when it comes to the so-called dark money, the money that doesn't have to be disclosed. So really, I'm not sure how much either side wants to go that route. That's a very striking finding because I think there's been a tremendous amount of coverage in, in, in some media that the biggest yeah. threat by far to democracy comes from groups like the Koch brothers and that dark money is, is primarily something that is being spent by, by billionaires who, who favor Trump or, or, the, uh, or the Republicans. That is the history, but it did change last cycle. You did a story uh, recently about the positions taken by various Democratic presidential candidates on a, a laundry list of democracy reform issues. Is there a good takeaway from that? How do they stand? Well, uh, I mean, the easy takeaway from that is there's not a lot of daylight between them. Uh, most of the candidates are in a general agreement on a lot of these issues. Uh, where you start to see some separation is uh, around some of the details around campaign finance laws, for example. Uh, and some of the top tier candidates are starting to come out with more concrete rules around lobbying disclosure and campaign finance rules. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden have all put out plans in recent weeks. But really, when we dug in and we looked at 17 different issues there are very few cases where there was striking difference among them. David Myers of The Fulcrum, thanks for joining us and explaining why your new site is needed. This has been great. I appreciate you guys having me on. And before you all tune out, Jim and me, our conversation is coming up. Jim and I. <laughs> 
Jim and I. That's right. Jim and I. So, Richard, we started this show with that Gallup poll that showed how unhappy people are with the way government's working. I have to count myself as one of them, as someone who's more on the libertarian side. I don't want the government doing tons of things, but I do want democracy to work. I want people's access to the process of electing the leaders they believe in. I, I'm a big believer in making sure that works. And that's what's, what's interesting about this organization, that they really are focused on helping people get access to the democratic system. Yeah, I, and something that you may not quite agree with me on, Jim, I think access to voting is, is super important and that we need to make it easier for people to to vote. And certainly in terms of having... Election Day be a holiday, something that Democrats drop from the House bill, is to me a no-brainer. Yeah, this is where I'm going to put on my cranky contrarian hat, which I actually rarely take off, as you know, (laughs) Um, and say, I don't actually agree with that. I think everyone should have the same access to voting. So if certain groups... But, like but, it, the, but they don't, because some people, it's much more difficult for them to get a day off work, and typically those people are, are low income or they're worried about right. losing their jobs. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, and I'm speaking in general here. I believe everyone should have the same access to voting. So, for example, he gave that example of Native Americans on the reservations and how hard it is to get for them to get to polling places. We need solutions for that. We need ways, if we are going to have voter ID laws, then we also need ways to help People say, you know, in the inner cities who don't have cars, don't have driver's license, make sure everyone has very easy access to getting the right kind of ID. But I'm not necessarily sure we need to streamline voting that much. So what about with online voting or mail-in ballots? I'm, I'm completely opposed to online voting. You think we have security problems now with the voting machines. Imagine, imagine the risks. I think there's something about the democratic process, just like jury duty. If you get called for jury duty, you should go. You should do it. It's your responsibility. When voting day comes around, yes, you get to the polling place. Maybe you have to stand in line for a little bit. When people stand in line for hours, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and and ridiculous here in New York, one of of the worst offenders I've seen. sometimes in certain neighborhoods and not other neighborhoods, that's got to be fixed. All for fixing that. But the idea that you should just... You know, in your spare time while you're couch surfing, pick up your phone and log in your vote for this candidate or that candidate. No, I don't think that's the way it should work. I think people should take it seriously. It's a solemn obligation. It's not just like ordering another pair of sneakers on Amazon. Two things that I would very much advocate for, though, making sure that that polling times are extended so that people can vote at six in the morning till say 10 at night. And then the other issue, which, which strikes me as really unfair is, is people who were not currently serving, but people who were convicted felons, not being able to vote for the rest of their lives. That yeah. seems like totally unfair over the top. So, so there, cause there, there are groups out there fighting to have people who've been in prison for felonies be able to vote the day they get out of prison. I, I, I think it's within our rights as a society to say cooling off period of waiting period, certainly until you're out of off probation. But at a certain point, yes, I think people who commit a crime should be reintegrated to our society with all the rights that we all have. So let's end on that happy note of agreement. <laughs> it's a rare thing, Richard. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Our music is by Lou Stravinsky. And we are a production of DaviesContent.com. Check us out if you're interested in making a podcast yourself. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.